The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to create a life that's intentional and dynamic? Welcome to The Intentional Spirit with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. Hello, everyone. How are you, you intentional spirits? It's, um, it's so great to always gather with you each week, whether you are listening right now live or where you have downloaded our show and listening at, a, at another time. We we bring in experts, um, people who have walked a certain journey, authors, practitioners, um, healers, and all the different wide range of people over the past 12 years of individuals that are offering other perspectives, different windows, healings, all that of what it means to be an intentional spirit for, you know, as I, as I say often, that an intentional spirit continues to walk forward, not based on how something may or may not be going, not based upon how you feel like your law of attraction is a working or not working, even though the law is always working, whether you are aware of it or not. But it entails all those different things that you continue to move forward. It's likened to the people that tell me that they're going to go into leadership when they have their lives together and everything is perfect. And I always say, so you're probably talking about in the afterlife, huh? So intentional spirits, people that take their life stories and then move those life stories that help and support so many people. It's my pleasure today to introduce you to Jan Phillips. Jan, welcome to our show today. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I was really looking forward to this subject kind of hits me at my core um, way sure. back as a teenager, but you've been doing amazing work um, out there in the world. And thank you. Thank you for being a difference maker. So welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it is a pleasure. And um, give us some uh, background. I mean, I've had, I'm a step up on our, our listeners and that I research you and things like that, but kind of give us a step up on how your journey began in your life and uh, how it shape shifted you to uh, be who you are today and what you stand for. Okay. So the nutshell version is 12 year old kid discovers she's gay and is raised in a Catholic family, so she becomes suicidal because about the worst thing you could be if you're a gay kid is queer. 
And so I'm trying to, I'm just so depressed and downtrodden and sick and just feel like I got to figure out how to kill myself. I'm in a Catholic school. My sixth grade nun sees me moping around and wonders why is this smart, talented, brilliant kid moping around. So he calls my mother and they decide to start a campaign called Positive Reinforcement. And the campaign looked like this. Whenever the kid does something noteworthy or well, give her a lot of affirmation for it. Praise her a lot. We're going to try and get her out of her shell. So at first, it felt like the nun was crazy or something. I didn't know what was happening, but nobody had ever praised me like that in my life. And my mom didn't (coughs) really do it very well because she has two other kids at home. And, you know, she's one of 14 kids. So praise wasn't a big common thing. So, but the nun did it in spades. And it just so happened that one day that sad little thick caterpillar turned into a butterfly. And that was the day I thought nuns had superpowers and that if they kept kids alive who were going to kill themselves, that's what I should be when I grew up. So I was 12. I waited six years. I entered the convent at age 18. The trouble was I was still gay. So that was trouble in River City right there because you don't want to be in an novitiate training program to be a nun surrounded by women. And you're at the age where you start falling in love with people. So that's what happens. I fell in love, get in trouble, get kicked out of the convent. So here I am. 20 years old, no plan B. So I was in upstate New York at the time in Syracuse, and I moved to California just to get out of state, just to run away and be where nobody knew me because I had so much shame and guilt and pain. And eventually rage and anger, it was just I was a maelstrom of emotion. And started to experience homophobia in a real cultural way. And when I did, I decided to become an activist. I decided to speak out about it. And, you know, Stonewall happened in 1969. This was only the same year I was kicked out of the convent. So gay pride was just a little teeny movement but it moved me. So I became a social activist. And then up springs the women's movement. And so it kind of burst into feminism, gay pride, feminism. And then it, right, there's no boundaries to all of our movements, right? So then I got involved with the anti-nuclear movement because Ronald Reagan became president. Mm. They were escalating nuclear weapons in a horrifying way. And I was working, I had started a Syracuse Cultural Workers with four other people, which was using the art to promote 
social justice and social consciousness. And we weren't paying ourselves only six bucks an hour. So I had to have a side job. And my side job was picture framer. And one day somebody left the book, The Hundredth Monkey, on my workbench. And when I read it on my lunch hour, I thought, oh, my God, I could be the hundredth monkey. It's about making change through consciousness and intention. With like preliminary, pre, with the preface to new thought, right? And so it was like you can make a difference by who you are, not necessarily by the words you say, but by the stands you take and by what you, how you are in the world and how you communicate love and hope and vision in a nonverbal way. And when I read that book, I that very day I started a bank account and I decided when I get $5,000 in this savings account, I'm going to make a peace pilgrimage around the world because I, fo- I was a photographer and I had been taking pictures of gay pride parades and peace rallies and all the demonstrations and the whole women's movement. So I actually took me a year and a half to save my money. But I actually left with backpacks with two slideshows, one on the women's movement and one on the peace movement. And I showed them, started in Japan. I showed my slideshows wherever I could. And then the people put me up in their house. And so my $5,000 lasted through 22 countries, took me a year, and introduced me to Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Judaism. And so I metabolized. You know, I'm, you're three months in the Himalayas, three months in India, wherever, you know, a month and a half in Japan. So those cultural traditions entered into me. And then I became, I transcended Christianity and kind of joined East to my West and loved the Asian traditions, loved Buddhism, loved Hinduism, the contemplative. It was the yin to my yang. So by the time I got home after that year of being on the road, I had turned from a social activist to a spiritual contemplative. And that's when I wrote my first book to figure out what had happened to me because I'm the kind of extrovert where until I hear myself say it, I don't know what the heck happened. So how could I be a spiritual contemplative when I used to be such, you know, it was because of the Eastern influence on my life. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a book called Making Peace, One Woman's Journey Around the World, which was my means of discovering what had happened to me. Every chapter was a different country and it helped me figure out and then I was just going to go back to my path of being a social activist but I was asked to teach at a women's writing conference for a week and what I discovered was the huge problem that women don't take their power don't take don't speak out are afraid of their voice don't know how to find their voice and that horrified me and so that became my cultural work, was to work with women 
on harvesting their stories, telling their stories, and eventually, because I became involved in in unity here in the States, I became involved in the higher consciousness movement. Eventually, it changed from just about, this is about your creativity, that we're here to create our lives, and anything else that gets created is a bonus. If you make paintings or photos or music, that's great, but every one of us here is creating our lives. So because of all the tragedy I went through as a result of the influence of the Catholic Church, I started to become an you might say, an influencer in the matter of spiritual intelligence, how to remove yourself from religious traditions that have hurt you and create a spirituality that informs you and infuses you with light and good energy for your life. So that's what happened to me, and that's why at age 72 I said I'm going to write a memoir because many people are leaving their churches now and they don't know how to create a strong and vivid spiritual life. And I'm the master at that. The end. <laughs> well, the beginning, uh, my dear, the beginning. Huh? Um, no, no doubt about it. I mean, I was just um, certainly focused on your your path your life work and all of that but i um and i i feel that you know since 19 i've had some type of affiliation with unity whether very engaged and involved and leadership and those kind of things and or just writing a book about how to speak unity like you know just simple words for people to understand years ago but I, yeah. I, I, I tell people that, you know, at, at 13 and a half, when my dad discovered me with a 17-year-old girl, um, the, I believe that that was the time that I, I started holding my breath. And it was when I yeah. walked into a unity at 19, having been invited by a friend, that, that I was given all these Eastern books. Um, and then I go into unity and then I get to know the, um, the minister there. And I was always obviously being terrified of being found out. I mean, of course, you know, that leaves that, that, that little hole there or big hole. Um, and I remember telling that unity minister, she invited me to dinner and we were just kind of talking and I said, well, you know, I am gay. And she said, well, where do you want to go to dinner? (laughs) And I went, did you just hear me what I said? And she said, well, that's, that's not a thing in unity. And I, you know, I, I believe I took a full breath again um, because that's our relationship with the divine, right? Our breath and our essence. And so, um, you know, as you were sharing that, I'm like, you know, wow, you know, and, um, and, and the fact of just, we just still have in our society today, um, first of all, it baffles me that in 2021, with all the data, all the information, all the stories and everything, 
that people still buy into a come sit down, let us tell you you're wrong and you're broken and, you know, you're a victim and, and this is the only pathway to anything. And there's only one lifetime. I mean, that whole story just fascinates me that people still buy that. And we're talking some really intelligent people um, (laughs) with all we know, you know, but anyway, like you, Eastern teachings and unity would be the reason I know I'm here alive. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, I was, I was reading up on you. I had no idea. Now we're like at 13 or 14 books, aren't we? I don't know. I think this is actually my 12, but okay. I haven't counted recently. Oh, I'm telling you like, and so this is what you've dedicated your life to is the uh, writing books. Cause that's not an easy task. Well, maybe for you, but maybe piano playing works for you and it's impossible for me. You know, we each have, I think that we each have gifts that are meant to be shared with the world. And if you know what your gift is, I wouldn't know how to do a radio show and look at you and how long you've been doing this and what a gift you are to to the whole world. There's people probably in Afghanistan that can listen to this, you know? Mm-hmm. People in Norway can listen to this. So your gift isn't book writing necessarily, but it, I had a great English teacher who taught us how to write, and I fell in love with writing. But I tell you, after I wrote my first book, it was like, okay, I just did that to figure out. Whenever I encounter a problem, you know, I try to, I have to write it out to see what happened. Mm-hmm. So the problem was I didn't know how I transformed from an activist to a contemplative for the first book. The second book was, I, I don't know. The problem was women are afraid of making a commitment to their creativity because nobody is telling them how important it is. The, the world's in the mess it is because women aren't speaking out about our lives and our wisdom and our knowing and our gifts. And so it's the patriarchy that's dominated by male thinking, and that's just dangerously out of balance. So then I write, marry your muse, you know, making a lasting commitment to your creativity, but it's always addressing a problem, right? And then mm-hmm. my God is at eye level is a photography book to encourage photographers to not just take pictures and put them in an album or keep them all in your iPhone or, or whatever you don't do with them, do, make something of it. You know, when you make a photograph, something happens. Something is calling to you. You look at it. You focus on it. You snap the shutter. You end up with a thing that has a message for you and probably for other people. So, you know, create an exhibition, you know, make a little photographic book of your journey right think it out do something make something of it so there was god is at eye level photography as a healing art then the next thing you know i you know have a terrible car accident die come back to life right and i have to heal myself i have third degree burns skin grafts on my back 
chunks oh of, you know, flesh out of my hip. I had to pretty much rethink my relationship to my body in order to heal myself because skin grafts are prone to infection and that would be big trouble. So in the process of learning to talk to all my trillions of cells and love them up, I wrote the book Divining the Body because I had been so, I was a brainiac and I was really removed from the magnificent mystery called my body until I got called back into it in a really huge way. And then after that, then I realized, oh, no, women are in trouble because they hate their bodies and they say terrible things about their bodies all the time. So then I created an anthology called The Waste is a Terrible Thing to Mind, right? So it's the creativity comes from what's the problem. The memoir is the first memoir I ever wrote, right? Everything else is a nonfiction book, which is a kind of cerebral approach to the problem. But a memoir isn't addressing any problems, but it is telling the story of how one kid made it out of a terrible situation. Because we're all, it's perilous out there. Whether you're a child or not, every day we wake up and the news is getting worse, right? Takes a pandemic, slow you down. I heard I heard the other day about this quote of Kurt Vonnegut. He put it on a post-it note and put it on his neighbor's car and it said, your planet's immune system is trying to get rid of you. Your planet's immune system is trying to get rid of you. Now, when you think about that, you think about our planet as a living organism, and we're like parasites. We're poisonous. We're poisoning. We're killing our mother planet. But I think what's truer than that is our planet's immune system is trying to evolve us. It's trying to push or push us toward higher mindedness to remind us of our oneness with the great creative force, right? So I don't know what this pandemic has to do with anything, but it's, you know, I mean, we're losing a lot of our population. We're not able to find each other because we have to stay so far isolated from each other. And now, you know, there's big wars going on, not wars, but battles between people who believe in vaccines and people who believe in medical liberties and people who don't believe in vaccines. You know, it's just the conflicts are growing and growing all the time. So I wrote my memoir just as an example of, well, this is how one woman survived. She made it to- she made it to 72, and she's non-stoppable, right? So, because I think we need each other's stories. Like you saying that time you sat with the unity minister and came out to her and she said, so what, where are we going to eat? You know, there's a lot of people that need to know it's safe because usually our experience is it's not safe. 
because the negativity about LGBTQ is all over the place. Trans people are having awful times right now. I mean, and so are gays. I mean, they're still throwing us off rooftops in the Middle East. They're still stoning us and burning us at the stake in Africa. It's it's terrible, the reality. Even in the United States, I mean, look at all. Every day I hear tragic stories about what happens to gay teens in the school campuses. It's just awful. But we, we're learning to survive. And so when you tell your survival story to me and I tell my survival story to you, it reinforces our hope and our joy. That's very true. Very true. Yeah, it's very it's very true and it it it's so wonderful when we can be aware of all these things that are going on around us that and and you know we can celebrate that in some ways in the states we've certainly made progress and yet universally not so much in other places and then it's it's just an interesting thing. You know, it it's like my aunt said to me one time, you know, you're such a uh, a speaker, you ought to go in politics. And I went, I need to live in the world where I have optimism and, <laughs> you know, not thinking about a divide all the time because it can, um, it can be exhausting. You know, it, it can really bring totally. you down if you, if you allow it um, and how you view the, are we making progress or are we not? And, and, uh, many of us are at the mercy of what we see on uh, TV or notified on our phone, or that's not really the collective of our whole world and, you know, and what it, what it looks like. Um, I, I applaud you for your dedication to activism and, you know, for the great storytelling about, you know, what is seen and what is witnessed that allows people to deepen their, their healing because um, like you, regardless of what we're facing at any given time, I, I don't believe we'll ever replace tribal experiences of people wanting to come together uh, more than just, you know, ball games um, <laughs> and yeah. hot dogs and, you know, apple pie, um, but also coming together to consciously create you know, some really beautiful things in our, in our, in our world, not our planet. Um, we're tuning in today. You can go to janphillips.com. Uh, she is an author of at least 12 books and maybe even more. Uh, <laughs> by the time you get to this website, she might've written another one, but I'm Temple Hayes and I appreciate you tuning in with us and we will be right back after this short break. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to The Intentional Spirit. 
with Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in. I'm talking to uh, an activist, a, a spiritual teacher and leader, Jan Phillips, and you can go to her website, janphillips.com. We are addressing her newest book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Um, you can also tune in with me at templehaze.com. Um, know more about the shamanic work I do in the world, as well as join us, uh, firstunity.org. Always a pleasure to have you tuning in. We love to hear about you and different shows that you would like for us to have. And what a what a timing as such here as we are into the holy day season of Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, uh, Christmas, uh, Festivus, Kwanzaa, all of that. And um, in, in a time where um, often uh, people, um, you know, move away from their their norm of eating, they tend to be more into sugaritis and and going places they they don't uh, they haven't allowed themselves to permission to say they don't want to go to and going through experiences and and all that driven uh, commercialization of what this time is, um, you know, uh, Jan what. A decision that I made many years ago that I was so happy I had a reframe is that I would hear um, spiritual leaders and colleagues start talking about Easter in February and they were already tired and Christmas they were already tired and they were so busy and all of that. And I thought, how incongruent, at least that was my awareness, how incongruent. We need to be thriving with an ignited energy during the holy day season because we're celebrating something new being born in us what a concept <laughs> oh what a concept yeah rather than getting into the martyrdom and the oh woes is me you know kind of uh, kind of thing so anyway um wow the things you are doing and you know i love the fact that 60 and 70 is the new uh 30 and 40 don't you Oh, let's hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I might say the new 50, but. <laughs> oh, why not? Aim a little higher. You've done it and everything else. That's a good one. That's a good mission. Oh, I wanted to say to people who are listening, go go to my website. But most importantly, click on that little thing that says sign up for Jan's newsletter. Because mm. if you're especially if you're in some remote place, especially if you don't have a spiritual community that keeps you lifted up. And if there's nobody in your life that supports and reminds you of the importance of your creativity, then if you're in my newsletter circle, I will be that person. And I spend, I send out every, every Sunday morning after a beautiful Emily Dickinson line in one of her poems is this line. I'll say it twice. The only news I get is bulletins all day from immortality. The only news I get is bulletins all day from immortality. And so I took that line of hers and created a masthead for my newsletter. And 
it's just quotations from my many books. It's just stuff that I've written, but it's or a video I've made or a piece of music that I've created. It's to reinforce your agency in the matter, your gift and your responsibility to show up in a way that what's inside you gets outside so that people can know the gift you are. So put yourself in my circle, and I promise it will benefit your life. I never sell names or I never do any of those capitalistic things. It's just an honorable, reverent circle that helps you be aware, be aware that every move you make in your life is a spiritual choice that will take you to your next step in your higher evolutionary process. So that's, I didn't want them to miss out on that opportunity. You know, I, I heard from a, there was a Balinese dancer, his, his name is a mile long, and I don't know how to say it or pronounce it or spell it, but he said these words, there's someone out there who needs you. Live your life so they can find you, right? Someone out there who needs you. Live your life so they can find you. And if you really know that is true, that people need you, then we all need to figure out how to have people find us. I mean, I'm in North Carolina now. I live in San Diego but I'm in North Carolina because my good friend moved here and said, I'll have a book signing party for you. Come on this date. And here I am. So I'm going to be talking to, I don't know, 30 or 40 people in a few days about the stuff that we're talking about right here. And then, and it's obvious the temple has figured it out because she's producing this show and every week religiously, you all are in her intimate circle of thousands and thousands of people because she's figured out how people can find her. And so I'm just saying that's a question for all of us. You can't just point to us and say, oh, lucky them. Oh, they must be, you know, so talented. You're every bit as lucky. You're every bit as talented. And all you have to do is inquire within. To really give some thought to what is the superpower you have and how does it get expressed in the world okay that's my sermon for the day hey that's a rich one that's a very very rich one what do you attribute um to um to how you got to be um at a place where we couldn't talk about our, our gayness to full acceptance. Uh, were there any steps or tools or aha moments that you went, oh, those would be my top three or four? Um, because it certainly yeah, wasn't it, religiosity, well, right? Um, it wasn't what? It, cer- it certainly wasn't religiosity. Um, no, it was not that. It, the first thing for me was, I actually, after I was kicked out of the convent, I fell in love with my high school English teacher. And she had a brother who was gay. 
and they everybody lived in Albany. I lived in Syracuse, but I would drive to Albany, and there was a massive gay pride rally weekend in June, probably 1970 or 71, and we went to that together. She was still in the convent, but she came out of the convent right after we started our relationship. But because her brother was gay and we hung out at his house a lot, we met a lot of gay men. And they were just so free and loving and fun. And, you know, of course, they all had tragic histories, but they really showed me that it's possible to transcend the suffering that goes along with being in a marginalized group. And that was the first thing when I went to the rally and saw there, are you kidding? There's thousands of us in this park in Albany. Speakers like Gloria Steinem and Kate Millett and musicians, you know, and the women's music that was coming out, Chris Williamson, Holly Near, Meg Christian, Margie Adam, all these people, Teresa Troll, showing up on the stages, women's, the Michigan Women's Music Festival, the California Women's Music. So culturally, even, you know, gay women comics, right? We were calling ourselves lesbians back then, but lesbian just seems like an old-fashioned word now. So anyway, the culture was opening up. There was a gay pride movement just growing since Stonewall in 1969. And I think... That's the thing. And what launched me into being an activist was when I was in California, I took a photography course on how to make a slideshow that was automated. This was way before computers and and PowerPoint. So how do you address a large crowd and, and have a dramatic impact was by using two slide projectors and an automated tape that had inaudible beeps on it that you created. So you could give music, images, and narration. So I took that course because I knew I wanted to make a difference. I knew I wanted to have be a splash. And so I, so the, the assignment for the whole semester was make, you know, a show that's five or ten minutes long, put it to music, da-da-da-da. So I photographed my community, which was lesbians. There was so there was eighty pit eighty photographs, one hundred and twenty photographs. It's a soundtrack by Chris Williamson singing. Chris Williamson singing, "Lean on me, I am your sister. Believe on me, I am your friend." There's nothing erotic about that. There was no eroticism in the show. It was just women. You might see a woman on a motorcycle with a T-shirt that says, "I like younger women." But it, that was as sassy as it got. It, it wasn't offensive. But I showed it to my class, and my professor called me out and said it was disgusting and he was going to give me an F. And some of my classmates actually shunned me. And so on that day, I decided I was going to speak out. So I went right over to the professor who taught human sexuality who was known for bringing in marginalized groups 
people to talk, you know, transvestites, cross-dressers, bisexuals, queers, whatever, the whole lot of us. And he had, and so I went and I said, I just experienced some horrific homophobia, and I want to talk to your class about what it's like being a lesbian and getting that kind of hatred. And so he goes, sure, sign me up. We put a date on the calendar, and that was what caused me to be an activist. Wow. Those two things. Yeah, what a powerful story. Because a lot of women couldn't, well, you can't say couldn't, but wouldn't come out because they had kids, they would lose custody. Women were losing custody of their kids in the early 70s. And all that happened to me. Um, I was, um, I was 19 and my partner was older and, um, her husband was a womanizer and had however many girlfriends, a man in the uniform, you know, (laughs) and, um, and, um, and she told him that she was gay and her kids were like four and two or something. And she yeah. lost custody and, and lost part of her will to live uh, in the same week, you know. Um, oh, my God. But they wouldn't address his stories. It was in a small Carolina town, which is why I said to you, for me and my life experience, great p- place to be from, not going to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it's all part of a journey. You know, and the people that go into the Carolinas now, it's like, oh, it's so cool. It's so accepting. It's like, well, watch your back. (laughs) Stay in the big cities. Stay in the big cities because that's not really true. But whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's exactly what happened um, to her was that. Uh, they wouldn't address any of his issues or any of his uh, inadequacies. It was all based upon the fact of what she had said that one day that she couldn't take it back or try to clean it up or anything else. It didn't matter. So, um, mm. yep, you're you're not only speaking it, but I personally had the up close and personal experience of that and what that is yeah. like to watch someone die because I'm talking energetic death because they've never been given permission to live. And that I think is part of, you know, the work you're doing and the work I'm doing is that there's a whole lot more to life than just about living. It's not allowing yourself to die while you're alive. And if you're not being you, you're not really living, you know? Yeah. Um, And I know that that's now easier to say in the States than it is in some countries, because if they walk out and announce who they are, like you said, they will either be hung or stoned or they will be put to death. But we must still keep telling the stories of hope. Yeah. So do you have a, like a a memory? I know you do. So better said how do I craft this um I'm sure along the way somebody has come up to you and looked you in the eyes and went thank you I read such and such I saw such and such and because of you I now breathe full breaths I'm confident you've had that happen do you have any 
like yeah, oh these are the magic the stories on a rainy day huh it happens all the time now like every day but it's interesting because it's never the same book it's like thank you so much for divining the body thank you so much for mary or muse it's interesting that these you know mary or muse was 1997 but the the ripple effect right and people you know how you're drawn to a book or it falls off the shelf by your feet right so people know it's kind of synchronicity in a way sometimes how did i get this book in my hands but people have luckily too because i i'm very grateful always when i get an email or a text or whatever yes the other day i got a letter in the mail it's like they tell you what how it matters and it's so great to be able to know because ordinarily nobody says you matter to me so much i try to do that all the time you know i try to to listen to people and let's talk about mysticism for a minute because this is field notes from a queer mystic so it's not all about the queer part but I think the mystic part is big unfolding because all it takes to be a mystic is is to really have a daily practice and to practice non-duality. It's mm. to get up above the fray and understand that it's all working out perfectly on the higher plane. You know, I'm here, there's a lot of, act, I'm staying with a big time activist here in North Carolina. And I noticed that she has a tendency to keep talking about what's wrong and how bad it is. And I'm mm -hmm. not, I don't do that. You know, I just say, I don't want to talk about something where I have no agency. And if I do have agency, then I'm going to talk about my successes, right? I go to Nigeria. I go to there to do a workshop for these Dominican sisters. I say, take me to some of the villages where you're doing your work. I go to a village where three o'clock in the afternoon, there's 70 kids standing outside the schoolhouse waiting for the teacher to show up who never shows up or rarely shows up. And I say to the nun, this is a terrible problem. They, you know, they came and got me out of the Range Rover and pulled my arm, pulled my sweater, took me into their classroom and said, be our teacher, be our teacher. They were desperate, desperate to be taught. I'm not a teacher. I said, what's two plus two? They go, four. They were so proud. And I thought, oh, I have to make it tricky on you with seven plus eight. I thought they wouldn't know it. They all shout out, their arms up in the air. 15, I start crying. I cried right in front of them. Mm. I said, oh, this is your lucky day. I'm here. I know how much you need a teacher. I'm gonna help figure this out. So Sister Rita and me figured it out. And within two years, we had the tribal chief donate the land we had the villagers agree that they wanted 
a schoolhouse with an apartment on each end for two teachers to live there. I went home and started the Living Kindness Foundation. Sister Rita said it'll cost $25,000. I figured out how to raise it. I send the money over. And now there's the Living Kindness Learning Center with two teachers and kids who don't have to wait outside all day to be taught, which is their birthright. So this is what we do. You encounter the problem. You know you're the problem solver. You get with who you need to get with, and you make it happen. And now, since Nigeria is taken care of, my lens has turned to racism in this country. Because since George Floyd, white people, we had a certain awakening at that opportunity, tragic as it was. It was an opportunity for white people to begin to understand what does white privilege mean? What does it mean to be black, right? And so now, how many books do you have on your book stand that have to do with race? I'm even part, my unity minister started an anti-racism program, an institute, mm-hmm. anti-racism institute. I went through the course, and now I'm going through the facilitator course. Because I have to be a student of my own racism. So the work Are you never talking ends. about um, Wendy Craig Purcell? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. She's a colleague friend of mine. And we started doing panels years ago on the the issues of, of, of racism. And it is such a, it's beautiful, uh, the emerging shifts yeah. that are that are happening and uh and the changes that are occurring and um yeah wendy is doing an amazing work and we applaud her and tell her when you see her that i said hello she's a she's a a beautiful beautiful spirit but absolutely i mean that and i'm i'm with you i i just can't entertain you know just people talking about what's wrong because it's still coming from the mentality that we are broken and the world is broken. And I just absolutely don't, don't believe that. Um, I couldn't believe I was broken as a, as a gay little girl. I mean, what if I had believed that, you know, I would be a suicide person or, I mean, I uh, almost drank myself to death, but I saw the light, (laughs) you know, but um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's like, um, I, I love, um, in my, in my book, you know, being a difference maker, I talk about the importance of being an enlightened rebel. And you, you talk about religiosity that tells people God never gives you more than you can handle. Or you even talk about new thought where people go, oh, I'm supposed to be positive. I'm just supposed to be positive. But we have things that go on in our world that we ought to get angry you know, we ought to get upset. We ought to say the George Floyd, this is not okay. This is not all right. Um, and yet there's an enlightened way to go about it that you make a lot more progress if you don't go to the level of the situation that you're attempting to address. Yeah. You know, 
So, yeah. absolutely. Quit talking about the problem. Just jump in and be part of the solution. That mm-hmm. gives more meaning to your life, too. Well, yeah, because if you're a person, you start focusing down. on. Right. And and to the people that just focus on the problems, they have more and more problems to address. Yeah. Because it's endless, you know. But if you just pick one, and every one of us gets to pick something else. Like, if there's 12 people in the room, and I say, what's the worst social problem that breaks your heart open? Someone's going to say the whales. Someone's going to say plastic in the ocean. Someone's going to say rainforest. Someone's going to say puppy mills. But whatever you say, that's where your work is. I'm not going to figure out how to go to the rainforest. I spend 25 bucks to Rainforest Alliance. But I can figure out how to be, use my whole body in the active anti-racism movement. I deployed in that movement. I'm a soldier in that movement because I am white and I have privilege and I know how to talk to white people about that because it's a massive thing. It's a massive work of transcendence to be able to be humble enough to say, uh-oh, the trouble's in me, you know, and then and then work every day at understanding it, forgiving it, living beyond it. It's constant work, but that's why our lives are filled with meaning and purpose and joy. Because we're deployed, we're employed, we're, we're, everything's going on in the service of the greater good. Once you figure mm-hmm. out, put, you know, whatever breaks your heart and whatever is your heart's desire, that's the key to what you should do because my heart desire is to write and to be in front of people to have the microphone in my hand well you're living you're living your heart jan and we're so grateful that you said yes everyone please go to janphillips.com sign up for her newsletter thank you so much for joining us and to all of you have a, a tremendous holy season allow yourself to be in the moment Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.